0: Good morning. Today is Thursday, March 24th, 2022. A highly controversial and sensitive subject is being discussed this week, and I hesitate to share it for fear that someone may misunderstand what I'm saying and possibly feel hurt by what i'm going to discuss but it is a very important subject nonetheless and it connects in an authentic way to the Torah reading that we have this shabbos and so i'm going to try delicately to discuss this subject after more than a decade of debating this issue the main body within the United States of psychiatrists that oversees the work called DSM-5. So that is the, the reference work that contains all of the psychiatric diagnoses that are recognized. So after a decade of debating this, they have added a new designation within the mental health field and that is to recognize intense grief after the passing of a loved one as a diagnosis and as a target for medical treatment so This is now called prolonged grief disorder, and it applies to a very small number of people, a very narrow slice of the population. It's estimated that it will apply to about 4% of people who have undergone, God forbid, a loss in their lives, and it refers to those individuals who are incapacitated in their grief. Who, even a year after the loss, are unable to return to their previous activities, unable to return to a normal routine? To quote Dr. Paul Applebaum, who was the chair of the committee that led to this result, they are the widows who wore black for the rest of their lives. Those who withdrew from social contacts and lived the rest of their lives in memory of a husband or wife they had lost. They are the parents who never got over it, and that's how we talked about them. Colloquially, we would say they never got over the loss of that child. So this is now a diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder that calls for treatment as yet undefined, but calls for intervention and treatment. This is a highly controversial subject because critics of this have vigorously argued against it. They've argued against categorizing grief as a mental disorder when in fact it is simply a fundamental and inevitable aspect of human experience. And proponents, uh, opponents of this new diagnosis have said, for example, that when a doctor tells a person that they have this disorder, they actually may be harming that person even more when, in fact, they are simply emerging slowly but naturally from their loss. And the truth is, everyone deals with grief differently at a different pace, some slower, some less slow, but everyone goes through this. Dr. Joanne Cacciatore is a professor of social work. And she has published widely against the idea of this diagnosis. And she said, I completely, utterly disagree that grief is a mental illness. Grief is normal. So, there's a doctor, Holly Pridgerson, who was a psychiatrist, and she did some of the research that led to this announcement. And she gathered data from many, many people who were undergoing grief. And she found that, again, in this small population, there was a, there, there were symptoms, there are symptoms of intense grief that are distinct from just depression. And they, and she found that for most people, symptoms of grief peaked after about six months. And then there was a smaller group, or again, around 4%, that remained, in her words, stuck and miserable and would continue to struggle with mood, functioning and sleep over the long term. So we have this debate among experts that is going on in the face of this announcement this week. For those who did formulate this disorder The question of course is, how do you distinguish this prolonged grief disorder with the normal grief that everyone goes through in the aftermath of a loss? And one of the most sensitive questions is, what's the time period? Now, I told you one study that found that based on the data The time period seems to be about six months, but what this team decided and what is actually in the definition of the disorder is a period of one year. They wanted to give a longer time period. Interesting how it coincides with Jewish traditions about mourning, at least in the case of a parent for a year. And again, They found that using the one year mark to look at someone who is still suffering intense symptoms of not being able it doesn 't mean that after a year you 're expected to have gotten over and and it doesn 't bother you and you 're not upset and and, and it 's over that's that 's not at all what it means. It means that after a year, the person who is grieving is simply not able to sleep at night, not able to go back to work, not able to function on a normal basis, in spite of the fact that they have sadness and, and loneliness etc but it 's a much more intense series of symptoms that lead to this. And again, approximately 4% of those who are undergoing grief will find themselves fitting this uh, diagnosis of prolonged grief that's being described now. Again, very, very controversial. In the words of Katrina Clemens, who is a professional who oversees grief counselors, She said we would never put a time frame around when someone should or should not feel that they have moved forward. Grieving people could be set back by the message that their response was dysfunctional. Anything we inject into this journey that says that's not normal could cause more harm then good, because you're already dealing with someone very vulnerable, and they need validation. <clears throat> I am not an expert, and I take no position on this debate. And this debate has no practical relevance for me in the sense that It in no way affects the concern, the care, and the involvement I have with someone who is grieving, no matter for how long. I do clearly recognize that there are some individuals who even years later are not functioning in a normal manner. but. Again, I take no position on this, whether it should be a diagnosis. I take no position. I will just point out the following. And that is, there is a significant, relevant insight that comes from Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik on the subject of Paraduma, the red heifer, which we read about this Shabbos, which we've discussed a couple of times this week and this is the connection of grief and tuma ritual impurity which is caused by coming into contact with death which the para aduma causes to reverse remember this ritual is intended to reverse the status of ritual impurity that was caused by a person coming into contact with death with a dead body. So let me share with you what Rav Salveitchik says. Tumma, ritual impurity, is the status of a person or an object that had been sanctified and then the sanctity is removed. So just to give one example, a woman has the highest level of sanctity in that she has the potential to create life. Like God, only a woman can do that. When on a monthly basis, the opportunity to be able to create life is lost, then a woman becomes Anita. And that brings with it a status of tame ritual impurity again there as i've said before there's no moral aspect to this there's nothing wrong with this it's a natural part of life but it means that there was the potential to create life and then that potential for the moment is no longer there so when there was sanctity and now there's a vacuum, that's what creates ritual impurity or tumah. For most types of tumah, ritual impurity, the antidote is to immerse in a body of water that we call a mikvah. The idea of a mikvah is to recreate the womb. It is a ceremony, a ritual of rebirth. It is a reconnection with sanctity and immersing in a mikvah is the sufficient and necessary ritual for almost all types of tumah, ritual impurity, with one exception. And that is the strongest form of tumah, tumas mes, one who has come into contact with death one who has come into contact with a dead body. And that's because human life is the highest sanctity. That's a value that Judaism and the Torah and Jewish law express over and over and over again. Human life is the highest sanctity. Excuse me. And its absence, the absence of life from a human body causes the highest level of tumma, ritual impurity, the highest level that there is. And in that case, mikvah is not enough. It also requires haza'ah. Hazza is the Hebrew word that means sprinkling. And that is the ritual that comes from the Torah portion, we read this Shabbos, that involves the paraduma. So, The paraduma is this animal with a calf with all reddish hair that is prepared, shechted, burned, and the ashes are collected. And then a small amount of ashes are added to a large amount of water. A person who is tame, who has come into contact with the dead body, has to go through a seven-day period, which we described earlier this week. And on the third day, and on the seventh day, they have to appear before a kohen. And the kohen will sprinkle a little bit of this water that had the ashes of the paraduma mixed into it, will sprinkle, haza, will sprinkle a little bit of this water on the person. The third day, and again on the seventh day, and at the end of the seventh day, the person will immerse in a mikveh, and then they are no longer tameh. they are now tahar, They're ritually pure. What's the difference, asks Rabbi Soloveitchik, between immersing in a mikvah and being sprinkled by the Kohen? Why is Hazza being sprinkled by the Kohen utilizing this very impossible-to-understand ritual of paraduma. What is? how is this different? How is it better? How does it help for this highest case of ritual impurity where immersing in a mikvah is not sufficient? So here's what the Rav says. When God forbid a loved one dies, A part of us is cut off. Contact with death, grieving, causes many of us to feel anguish. And we feel anguish over the loss. We feel anguish and grief over our loneliness and over our own mortality, which comes into focus when someone we love passes away. In Jewish tradition, we have numerous practices for someone who, is under, who has undergone such a terrible loss, God forbid. For example, there is the practice that immediately after the funeral of a loved one, of an immediate family member, the relatives come home, the immediate family members come home, and the first thing that happens as they prepare to start Shiva is there is a meal called Su'udas Havra'a, the condolence meal. Now, first of all, this is a logical uh, ceremony, uh, a logical step. And by the way, the idea of Having a meal for mourners when they come home from the cemetery is not limited to Jews. There are many religions and many cultures that have a similar idea. First of all, it's just very, very practical because the family is probably hungry because they've been preoccupied. They've certainly been distracted. They probably have not thought about taking care of their own needs. And so they may be hungry. So we want to feed them. That's on a simple level. But there's one detail about this. And that is, for this first meal, when the family returns from the cemetery, they are not allowed to prepare it themselves. It must be prepared and served to them by others. And Rav Salavechik explains that the beginning of the healing process, which is what the Shiva is supposed to start, is this action this meal which makes which emphasizes that you are still connected to others there are people around you that care about you that are enveloping you that are serving you that are looking out for you at this moment of your greatest vulnerability and grief It does not mean to suggest in any way that these people around, relatives and friends are somehow a substitute for the person who passed away. Not in any sense whatsoever. But this is meant to be a reassurance of the comforting bonds that we have with others. And Shiva is meant to continue that process where there are others around us. So again, we feel connected. We feel that we are not alone. We may be alone in our grief and in our emotions, but we are. it is emphasized to us the connections that we have to others who care for us. And explains Rav Soloveitchik, here's the difference between immersing in a mikvah and being sprinkled by the water by a kohen. To immerse in a mikvah, I do it myself. I don't need anybody else to help me. Hazaaah, to be sprinkled with the water that comes from the para aduma, it requires another person. I need another person to sprinkle that water on me. I can't do it to myself. Even a Kohen is not allowed to do it to himself. It must be another person who is assisting, who is doing something for me, to help me, to support me. And here's the deepest truth. For all kinds of problems that we face in the world, I may be able to heal myself. I may be able to help myself. I can handle it. I don't need any help. But for the ultimate problem, for the deepest problem, I need the assistance of others. I need the connection to others. I can't do it by myself. Parādhūma teaches us that it is natural to need the comfort and assistance of others when we are suffering grief or other serious life-altering issues. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong with us or that we are somehow sick or dysfunctional. That's not what it means. Grief is not a problem to be solved. Grief means that we are human, Grief means that we need each other. Grief is not a problem. It is rather a process to be lived through. And it is a process for which we need each other. And that lesson is taught to us by the procedure of the paraduma that we read this Shabbos. My friends, I want to wish you a great day. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.